Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Dylan Jones joins Nate to talk about his book, Wichita Lineman, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. Nate and Dylan discuss how Glenn Campbell and Jimmy Webb, two young men from the Midwest, created one of the world's classic pop songs. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Dylan Jones, author of The Wichita Lineman, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. Dylan, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. And so this is quite a title, The World's Greatest Unfinished Song. Well, uh, Bob, Bob Dylan called it the greatest song ever written, uh, and it is unfinished. So I think we can, I think we can rightly call it the world's greatest unfinished song. <laughs> I'm not going to quibble with you. And we are, of <laughs> course, talking about Glenn Campbell's classic recording of Jimmy Webb's Wichita Lineman, which was actually the second in a series of collaborations between the songwriter and the singer that started with By the Time I Get to Phoenix a few months earlier, which is really, you know, Jill on My Mind is the song that frequently is credited with kickstarting Glenn Campbell's period of biggest success. And it was enormous. The guy was an enormous superstar from 67 to 70 in the States and continued to have major hits into the mid to late 70s. And, but it was really, by the time I get to Phoenix, it was the first time that he was, you know, number three on the U.S. country charts and, and making a real impact on the pop charts. But nothing really prepared the world for the success of which alignment. Yeah, it's um, they'd had a big hit with By the Time I Get to Phoenix. And at that point, Jimmy Webb and Glenn Campbell didn't didn't know each other. Um, because Glenn Campbell recorded the song um, because he'd heard it on a demo tape, but then quite a few other people um, recorded the song, but he was the one who had the hit with it. And being a very straight up and down guy, he called up Jimmy Webb and said, can you write me another song about a place? <laughs> um, so, so this song was a, was a direct commission. Uh, and so... Jimmy Webb spent uh, the best part of an afternoon trying to write another song about a city. Um, and he came up with this idea of uh, Wichita Lineman, of this uh, um, telephone repairman, um, upper pole in the middle of the Midwest, uh, supposedly listening to his long lost lover uh, on the telephone wire. And he spent three or four hours 
writing this song. And because Glenn Campbell was actually recording at the time, they kept calling him up and saying, have you finished? Have you finished? Have you finished the song? Uh, and in the end, um, even though the song was only three quarters finished, uh, Glenn Campbell um, uh, stopped recording, put it on a messenger and sent it off to Glenn Campbell and then didn't hear anything. Didn't hear anything for about three weeks. Crazy. And they and were... Go on. I just want to drill into the unfinished aspect because, you know, I have somebody who's listened to Wichita Lyman for a good part of my 50 years, and that never struck me as unfinished. But reading the book and then going back and looking at the song, there's really no concluding verse. There's no novel bridge. What condition did Jimmy Webb send him the song and did and he felt it was unfinished? Yeah. And if you listen to the recording, the uh the the bridge is a um uh just a, a, um the uh the chorus um played again uh, on a guitar um and there is no final verse. Um and Jimmy Webb thought that uh, Glenn Campbell had heard his demo tape and not been particularly interested, but they were doing they were recording a uh, a commercial for Chevrolet, I think it was, and they both happened to be in the same place at the same time. And um, um, Jimmy Webb rather um, uh, shyly went up to Glenn Campbell and said, "I'm really sorry about that song, and I, I guess you didn't like it." And he said, "We loved it. We recorded it. It's coming out in three weeks' time." Um, and so that extraordinary record that manages to evoke so much and so many people, so many generations hold dear is actually something that the person who wrote it didn't think was finished. That's <laughs> crazy. But I guess that's you never have the perspective on your own work that, that other people do. And, and Exactly. Uh, and it's such a simple solution for Glenn Campbell to power through just with a simple guitar solo restating the melody and not worry about writing another verse sure. or a bridge. But let's talk about a little bit the collaboration between these two. You call this the great crossover marriage. What was it about these guys? Because they're both from the Midwest. They both have sort of roots in country and pop. But what is it that's different about them that makes this such a crossover marriage? I think because they both respected what the other could bring. And if you go on YouTube um, and you look at all the dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews with, uh, with Glenn Campbell on chat shows, and he is asked the inevitable question about his decades, sort of 40-year, 50-year relationship, professional relationship with Jimmy Webb. He's always incredibly respectful. And you might have thought that after such a long time and the fact that their sort of purple patch was towards the beginning of both of their careers, that he may have felt that this was sort of a millstone around his neck or something in his past, but always very respectful of the fact that Jimmy Webb's song made, made him famous and also the fact that they remained close friends throughout their life. I mean, Glenn Campbell was um, uh, a card-carrying Republican. Uh, Jimmy Webb was a card-carrying liberal. Um, and they both led very different lives. And they both had... Um, often different musical tastes but i think they both had the same motivation coming from the same part of the country uh, and they appreciated quality no doubt about that and they achieved some incredible quality together and one thing that that i didn't know from reading the book was that jimmy webb had actually been a fan of glenn campbell way before 
most 90% of Americans heard of Glenn Campbell, that he, that there was a 1961 song called Turn Around to Look at Me that Jimmy Webb found and was a big fan of that Glenn Campbell recorded. And let's hear a little bit of that right now. That's Turn Around to Look at Me by Glenn Campbell from 1961. Walking behind you Turn around Look at me There is someone watching your footsteps Turn around Look at me And that was Turn Around and Look at Me from Glenn Campbell in 1961, a song that the young Jimmy Webb somehow heard and became a big fan of and immediately fantasized about writing songs for him then, even though Jimmy Webb's career was a long way from starting at that point. It was weird. Um, Jimmy Webb was out in his father's tractor one afternoon, and that, ra- and that song came on the radio. Um, and as you say, it wasn't, it wasn't a hit, and it was really random and kind of bizarre that Jimmy Webb should hear this song and he said and he 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 still says today he said that i heard that song i thought it was the most beautiful song and i thought i want to grow up one day and write a song for glenn campbell Uh, and if that's all i achieve in this world that will be enough for me (laughs) isn't that strange (laughs) not only did he write one song for uh, Glenn Campbell. He wrote dozens and dozens of songs for Glenn Campbell, and they went on to have one of the most productive professional relationships of the 60s and 70s. But it took a while for Glenn Campbell to get to a point where he's having hits. Like he's He records that song in 1961, but he serves a, virtually a decade-long apprenticeship, not only singing and, and doing some songwriting, but you know, has a contract as a singer, but primarily making his living as a session man in LA with the fabled and posthumously named wrecking crew of session musicians who played for, you know, Phil Spector and Sonny Bono and basically all the hits coming out of LA. There's a good chance if it was recorded in LA in the sixties, Glenn Campbell's guitar is on there. Yeah, but he wasn't just a session musician. He was a virtuoso um, he was he was the, doing exactly the same thing. He had exactly the same apprenticeship that, that, that Jimmy Page did before he formed Led Zeppelin. And it, as you say, he spent seven or eight years recording six sessions a day for all those great pop hits of the early 60s, Ike and Tina Turner, um, Sonny and Sher, the Beach Boys, the Monkees, et cetera, et cetera. And again, if you go down a rabbit hole on YouTube, there is... Uh, I can't remember what song it is or indeed what show it is. It's pretty easy to find. It's Glenn Campbell playing a guitar solo. And it's as good as anything Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix did. He was, he was, he was a real craftsman. Um, he, had a, he had a real gift. And he could have quite easily um, spent his entire career being a virtuoso guitar player, uh, a, a guitar for hire. But he was desperate to be a pop performer. He was desperate to be a a solo entertainer. And he was also gifted. He was blessed with having a great voice as well as the ability to play guitar. And that voice got him an opportunity to actually be Brian Wilson's first replacement in the touring incarnation of the Beach Boys in the mid-60s. That's right. When um, 
uh, when Brian Wilson didn't want didn't want to tour any anymore. Uh, and there's a favour after Glen Campbell had successfully stepped in for him. Uh, Brian Wilson returned the favour by writing him a song called "Guess I'm Dumb." Um, which is not fantastically well known, but is a, a beautiful song from from Brian Wilson's Purple period, sort of sixty five to sixty seven, uh, and it's uh, it's it's one of the most extraordinary Brian Wilson songs you'll ever hear. Yeah, and it uh, pains me I hadn't selected it to listen to on the show, but I'm really uh, fighting the itch. So I guess we'll go ahead and and, and hear a little bit of "Guess I'm Dumb" by Glenn Campbell, written by Brian Wilson. I give in when I know I should be strong I still give in even though I know it's wrong Know it's wrong I guess I'm dumb But I don't care And breaking off wasn't hard to and that was Glenn Campbell doing Brian Wilson's production of Guess I'm Dumb, which is written by Brian Wilson at the peak of his powers right around the time of Pet Sounds, and yet not a hit. No, it was the, the wrong kind of uh, music for, uh, for Glenn Campbell. It's a beautiful song, and you listen to it now, and you think that it's an extraordinary piece of music. But, but uh, you have to remember that... Um, uh, the, the music that Brian Wilson was making for the Beach Boys at the time, even though it was now revered as some of the greatest pop music ever written, ever performed, ever recorded, at the time, it wasn't fantastically popular. Uh, Glenn Campbell was an unknown, um, so it's really no surprise that it wasn't a hit. And it took him a couple more years uh, to perfect his formula, but he does it on Gentle In My Mind. What was it about that song and Glenn Campbell's approach to it that set Glenn on the path that brought him to international superstardom? I think because Glenn Campbell was interested in being popular. And, and so he courted uh, the sort of pop country market, which wasn't particularly fashionable at the time, but it was very, very, very popular. And nowadays, if you think back to the 60s, we all think of the narrative arc of, of pop culture, which largely involved youth culture, coming out of Beatlemania into the uh, hippies, the alternative culture, et cetera, et cetera. So when we think of the 60s, we think of all those classic songs. But actually, mainstream culture in, in uh, North America at the time was pop country. It was very mainstream. Um, it was the likes of Dean Martin and Kenny Rogers, and it was actually very formulaic. So the great pop that we remember from the 60s actually at the time was, was less popular than the kind of music that, that Glenn Campbell decided to pursue. And he pursued it brilliantly. And meanwhile, young Jimmy Webb comes to, or he's in California, but he, he, his father moves back to the Midwest where he'd grown up. And he starts an apprentice with Motown as a songwriter and learns a lot, but doesn't click at Barry Gordy's Music Factory. No, I think that he, he, he learned a lot about craftsmanship. He learned a lot about recording. But in those days, Motown was a machine uh, and everybody had to w work as a technician or a craftsman in the machine on the production line. And if you were slightly idiosyncratic, as Jimmy Webb was, um, you wouldn't have worked out. And 
I don't think they left on particularly bad terms, but he was too individual. He was too idiosyncratic. He was too odd, I think, as a composer to work within the strict uh, and narrow confines of, of what was the hit factory at the time. And, and yeah, very soon after, I mean, and this guy is young. Jimmy Webb has his biggest hits in his very, very early 20s. And he hits first with a group called The Fifth Dimension, a song called Up, Up and Away. Yeah, that was um, that was his big hit. Um, it won a bunch of Grammys. It was hugely successful. It was used by an airline. Um, it was one of those songs that you couldn't kind of escape for 18 months. And even though it made his career, and even though it um, uh, put him on the path of success, even though it made him a lot of money and it was very popular, it very quickly became uh, a sort of millstone around his neck because some people didn't take him seriously because it was such a pop tune. Almost everything else that Jimmy Webb uh, wrote at the time and almost everything that he's written since is, is far more complex um, and, and far stranger than that because actually Up, Up and Away is a, it is a very complex song, but when you hear it, it sounds almost trite and sort of lightweight. Um, and so it was um it was a bit of a poison chalice and and he struggles a little bit and you didn't go into this in the book as much as as i've thought about this situation for jimmy webb but he after that hit he's basically handed the fifth dimension franchise which has become a pretty big franchise in a short period of time and he's given complete carte blanche to write and produce their second album the magic garden and that doesn't hit and He's also struggling, you know, he writes a whole suite of songs centered around MacArthur Park and tries to pitch it to the association and they turn it down. So Jimmy Webb's kind of struggling a little bit before he connects with with Glenn Campbell. Yeah, because he was intent on following his own true path and because, uh, as I said, he his, his song structures were obtuse um, they were almost classical in some respects and he was he was pretty avant-garde but he wasn't avant-garde in a cool popular underground uh kind of jefferson airplane way he was he was sort of screwing uh with the the sort of great american songbook if you like and he was he was being as adventurous um with with the the sort of show tune uh, genre as someone like Jimi Hendrix was in uh, in rock music, which was a very weird place to be in 1968, and and his hit with Richard Harris, the actor, an English actor, after the association turns down what was originally supposed to be a song suite for six part harmony, and he ends up with an English actor who basically can't sing at all. Uh, and yet has enormous success with the really long track, a really strange track called MacArthur Park. Yeah, MacArthur Park is still one of the oddest songs to have been a massive hit. Um, it's very long. It's uh, very convoluted. Um, doesn't make much sense if you don't know the basis of, of the ly lyrics. Um and as you say, it was performed by a hugely popular um, actor who, who, who wasn't blessed with the world's greatest singing voice. Um, and yet it was this massive, massive hit. And that was far more representative of Jimmy Webb's talent 
uh, and his and his predisposition than something like up 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 and away. Absolutely, and it's also funny that Waylon Jennings had a big country hit with MacArthur Park just a couple years later. So that country connection with Jimmy Webb, as implausible as it seems, given that he's got such a frothy, poppy confection of what you call show tunes and ironic twists on the great American songbook. But there was something about him. And I guess, you know, here's a kid who grew up in Texas in the Oklahoma Panhandle. There's something about him that connects with America's countryside. Yeah. I mean, they both, they both understood uh, the part of the country where they came from. Um, and I don't think it's really any great surprise, or at least it's kind of ironic in a, in a sweet sense that their biggest hit, their most pronounced song, Wichita Lineman, is actually written about an area that was very, very close to where they w- were both brought up. And that idea of um, a song which is about traveling about moving but it's also about home and i think that you can look at both of their careers and 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 see these two working class guys um who dream of success and they both have success on the west coast uh, of america and they have their biggest hits with songs that are about america and I found it really funny that, that Glenn Campbell's takeaway from the hit success of By the Time I Get to Phoenix is that he needs another Jimmy Webb song about a place. And they go on you know, to have Phoenix and then Wichita and then followed up with Galveston, go back to the well with Houston later on. That I hadn't really – for some reason that hadn't occurred to me that all these great collaborations were centered on place. And yet every one of – the role of the place in every one of those songs – is someplace you're going away from or you're missing. Yeah, I think that the um, you, you have to you have to understand that the Glenn Campbell was a pragmatist, and if if he had a hit with one thing, then the best idea to to, to have some more success was to repeat it. Um, and he was lucky enough or smart enough to work with a songwriter who was perfectly prepared to do that, but had an innate ability to pivot from that uh, and to create um, songs uh, which almost bore no relation to each other. Because if you listen to Galveston or Phoenix or Wichita Lineman, um, they are about places in in the west or the southwest, but they're very very different songs. Um, and actually, even though they have the same uh, similar qualities, you wouldn't immediately know that they'd been written by the same person. Yeah, and that chameleon aspect holds through in the covers of Jimmy Webb's songs because the the most famous, other than Glenn Campbell's version, by the time I get to Phoenix, is Isaac Hayes' totally epic take on the song that is this bizarre kind of proto-rap lounge funk stretched out beyond all reason. The the thing about Wichita Lineman, and you might disagree with me on this, I I don't think there are hardly any good cover versions of it. I mean, you can take some songs and they've been covered by dozens and dozens of people and you can kind of listen to all of them and many of them have achieved sort of cult status. But actually... Uh, even though it's my favorite song, I don't really like listening to other people perform it because I think that Glenn Campbell's recording of it is just, is is unmatchable. Absolutely. And that's not true for Phoenix, which is one of the most covered songs uh, in the yeah, popular music canon. Yeah, I think you're right. Canon. You're right. 
Yeah. And, and I think, I th- yeah, last time I looked, I think it was going toe-to-toe with Paul McCartney's Michelle uh, for third place or something in the most covered songs. But, uh, yeah, and that's an interesting point. The Wichita lineman that Glenn Campbell nailed it so definitively that there really isn't a notable, you know, there's no Waylon Jennings, MacArthur Park, or Isaac Hayes by yeah, the time I get to finish exactly, exactly. reinterpretation yeah, right. of, of Wichita Lineman. And another thing that you bring up in the book that, that I want to get out is the context that this song came out. In 1968, for as much as you talk about it, and you're right that, you know, it was the time of Engelbert Humperdinck and Tom Jones and, and you know, this very middle-of-the-road pop was very popular both in Britain and the U.S. And, and yet there's, you know, you mentioned the Jefferson Airplane. There's this very radical movement going on on the left and in rock music and songs like like Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone from 1965 or The Stone's Street Fighting Man from the same year 1968, you describe those as epochal songs that as soon as they come out, everything has changed. And it's the kind of song that people immediately recognize as a, as a harbinger of that time. And yet, Wichita Lineman didn't have that effect. It's a sleeper. It takes a long time for people to recognize that this is all also an epic song in in that caliber. I think that's why so many people like it, um, because as you say, if you if you listen to a lot of the big uh, sort of classic um, tunes from the era, not only do they remind you of perhaps where you were when you first heard them, but they're very evocative of the of 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 the time itself. Uh, and you think of all the, the sort of cataclysmic news events of the sixties, um, the assassinations, the counterculture, um, drugs, free love, uh, Vietnam, all of this stuff, and so many songs out of the counterculture, so-called counterculture at the time, uh, are very vivid uh, in a way that they can sort of conjure up images of the late sixties. But Wichita Lyman is just one of these songs. It's like a uh, an earworm that you hear and it's in the back of your mind and you think, yeah, you, you, you kind of carry it with you. Because when I was writing and researching the book, um, you kind of, it's one of those songs where everyone says, oh yeah, that's my favorite song. That's my favorite song. That's my favorite. Everyone from Bob Dylan to Paul Weller to Chris Difford from Squeeze, Elvis Costello, everyone has a place in their heart for this song because it means so much to them. And perhaps... Perhaps it means so much to them because, because of, unlike Sympathy for the Devil or Hey Jude or uh, um, Like a Rolling Stone, they're not significant in a sort of general way. They're significant in a personal way. And my, my relationship with Wichita Lyman is a relationship that no one else is going to have. Absolutely. And I think that's true for me as well. And and you tell the story of, of, you know, coming across that song as a child. And I think millions of Gen Xers had that same experience. I was a little younger than you, so I didn't actually hear it when it was a current radio hit. But I think I caught Glenn Campbell as a guest on a Sonny and Cher special a few years later. And because I vividly remember seeing him do Wichita Lyman on TV and it had a weird effect on me. I can remember my sister was glued to the TV when that came on. And, and I knew even though it wasn't kiss or Led Zeppelin or the things that my cool big brothers were indoctrinating me with in this, you know, American machismo hard rock school, 
you know, there's another side of me that was sitting with my sister and watching for Jim Croce to come on TV and <laughs> the Glenn Campbell Wichita Lima definitely hit that same spot that yeah, wasn't something yeah. I was going to be bragging about on the playground. But, <laughs> you know, it definitely was immediately significant as a special song. I mean, there was something yeah. about it that that just took out. And let's hear let's hear the opening of Wichita Lyman right now. And this is Carol Kay's baseline opening it up. This is Glenn Campbell's Wichita Lyman. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main roads Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire And that was Glenn Campbell's version of Jimmy Webb's Wichita Lineman. And let's talk a little bit about the session crew uh, that they assembled for that song. It's a pretty small group of people, but very elite. Uh, every one of them uh, members of the Wrecking Crew, and I would say to a man, but obviously Carol Kay, the great bass player, was not a man. Yeah, the uh, that descending intro, on the guitar intro, um, was was uh, was was originated by Carol Kay in in the studio. But as you say. Um, everyone who played on that record was was a member of the Wrecking Crew, musicians who Glenn Campbell had had been performing with for five or six years, um, and I suppose they had such a, a, an innate way of of working together that they uh, really understood how to do things in a very um, uh, efficient, effective, and quick way. Um, because it wasn't one of those records which took weeks to produce. Um, obviously, when you get to something like MacArthur Park, that took as long to produce as most people at the time took to record albums. But I think Wichita Lineman was was a was was a day recording, and then there were some orchestral overdubs afterwards, but not much. Um, so it was sort of it was honed in the studio, which which again is a remarkable feat when you consider that um, there was not much to work with in, in terms of the song structure. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to Carol Kay, you've got uh, Jim Gordon, who's legendary for playing with Eric Clapton and Derek and the Dominoes and co-writing Layla on drums, later uh, tragically succumbed to schizophrenia and murdered his mother. And you've got Al Casey, who's you know, the kind of the great rhythm guitarist of of the Wrecking Crew. He's kind of like John McLaughlin in London, who uh, was playing with Jimmy Page every day and famously refused, you know, despite being the great jazz improviser, refused to play anything but chords on the pop song. So you cannot identify what John McLaughlin did in his session work. And, and Al Casey's yeah. kind of the same, same sure. way. Sure. And he also had the strings arranged by Aldo Lori. And, you know, Jimmy Webb was somebody who would frequently arrange his own strings, but he wasn't at that point in his career with Glenn Campbell. No, that's true. And I think that um, both of them knew, um, uh, although um, that um, Jimmy Webb initially didn't have anything to do with the recording of it, um, that uh, they both innately knew they understood how to get the best out of people. Because I think if you've been a session musician, if you've worked at Motown, you know, you learn your craft uh, and you learn your chops, as, as you say, uh, and you understand how to get the best out of people in a short period of time. 
And there's an unusual instrument that they use on the track that, that Webb had included on the demo and actually had to move it out to the studio. It's a Gull Branson organ, and that produces the sort of telegraph sound. Uh, that's, that's right, a yeah. feature of the song. Tell us a little bit about that and the role of technology in Wichita Lineman. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, uh, and again, it's it's almost uh, a sort of happy accident because that organ wasn't something which, uh, either of them used on any other records. It was um, very, very particular to that particular song. And I think that's one of the reasons why people revere the song so much, because it is so particular, because it's it, it's very slick in some respects, but it's, uh, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a complex song in terms of the arrangement, even though the melody is quite simple. Um, and it's an odd structure. It's not the kind of song which is often um, a pop hit. Yeah, and it's easy because it was such a big hit and it becomes so ubiquitous, it's easy to assume that it does fit the normal patterns. But if you actually listen to it, it's a very, very strange song and and really unlike almost anything that came before or since. I mean, and you bring out that it's a song that celebrates work, which is very rare in American song. Yeah. And it's um, that was one of the uh, one of the initial ideas for the song because Jimmy Webb wanted to write about an everyman. He had this idea which was quite fanciful uh, and also kind of not real. It was uh, a dreamlike, imaginary lyric, but he wanted it to be. Um, he, he wanted the protagonist to be a working man. Um, to show or infer that these emotions um, that are, are universal. Um, and even though it's a kind of odd idea, it's a silly idea, a man listening to his, his old love down a telephone wire, um, and it's a sort of, uh, it's a fiction, um, it was very important to him to have it rooted in some kind of reality. And and as much as the song is rooted in reality, and their follow-up, Galveston, is also rooted in reality, but a different aspect. It it deals explicitly with the Vietnam War, which is something Glenn Campbell wasn't entirely comfortable with, and he actually changed Webb's lyrics on Galveston. Yeah, I think that the um, uh, I, I think it's easy to listen to Galveston without paying much attention and not realize that it has it is a message song. But then you're right. If you do analyze the lyrics, then Glenn Campbell turned the song from an almost from an anti-war song to a pro-war song. But it it shows the strength of their relationship that that didn't cause any undue aggravation. Yeah, Jimmy Webb's able to roll with the punches and and isn't a prima donna about it. And and Campbell's changes are fairly subtle. I would say it was more of a pro-soldier song than a pro-war song. And and yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's I I think that's a good way of putting it. And it and it hit a sweet spot for a lot of Americans who were either away in the war or had someone dear to them who was away in the war. And and it, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And it dealt with it very subtly. But again, it's the same feelings of longing and loss and departure that have been key elements of by the time I get to Phoenix and and Wichita alignment. So there's sort of an ode to loss and and missing someone that Webb and Campbell are really doing. Yeah, I mean with. I I think you can see you can hear that rather 
in many songs that Jimmy Webb wrote. But I think because Glenn Campbell had such um, a plaintive voice um, that he could carry that emotion very well. And yeah, and he did have a totally unique gift. And I guess that's what Jimmy Webb was hearing in 1961 was was that longing that that Campbell was able to put into what was a pretty conventional, not quite do what, but you know, it's it's a '50s changes type song that sure, didn't yeah, yeah. didn't break through. There's nothing really special about that song or that recording, and, and the pop audience in 1961 didn't respond to it. But Jimmy Webb heard something, and it was probably Campbell's voice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then after they have their massive success, though, and Campbell's success just builds because he then hosts a TV show that's enormously popular for a couple of years. But as TV is wont to do, sort of burn out his appeal with a lot of his audience in a relatively short time. And both of these guys suffer a little bit from having such enormous success. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Jimmy Webb was – frustrated because he wanted to push the envelope and he wanted to basically excel and develop as a songwriter. Uh, and then Glenn Campbell very much quite quickly actually became uh, a kind of mid middle of the road entertainer and that's a pejorative and um, uh, he was very mainstream and he continued to court the country audience and by the 70s or 80s, it'd become a kind of not a forgotten act, but he'd become a very mainstream, uh, middle of the road, kind of B grade uh, performer um, who wasn't interested, wasn't remotely interested in pushing the envelope. Whereas Jimmy Webb, who was equally sort of shunned, I suppose, um, was trapped in a in a in a world where um, he was considered to be someone from the past who was trying to subvert the, the sort of the great um, American uh, classic um, song, uh, whereas he always considered himself to be more inventive than that and um, would probably have preferred to have been embraced by the counterculture at the time. Yeah, I mean, he, he was out there performing as a singer-songwriter, and, and this was an era, you know, when other songwriters like Carole King and James Taylor and Jackson Brown, even, who had a pretty weak voice, are finding enormous success as part of the singer-songwriter movement. But Jimmy Webb was never accepted uh, as part of that, although well, he was personally accepted by some of those folks, but not... I, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that... Um... Uh, he's probably a better songwriter than he is a singer. I mean, he still performs now, but I went to see him uh, perform uh, and uh, when I interviewed him for the book. And when he does these kind of supper club gigs, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, the atmosphere is fantastic. And the stories that he tells are great too. But, you, but it's the whole package. And you, know, you kind of get the feeling that people are going because they want to hear Jimmy Webb Sing, sing and talk about these great songs that he wrote from from his canon. Um, but I think he'd even say to himself, I mean, he he is not the world's best singer. Yeah, and that definitely held him back. And meanwhile, Glenn Campbell was held back by some personal demons. I mean, he he was fighting this sort of, and this is a classic dichotomy that you hear about when you study American song is. 
you know, whether it's Glenn Campbell or Marvin Gaye or Al Green or Prince, there's this Bible-thumping party Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. And, and Glenn Campbell, you know, this is a guy who wrote songs like Less is Less of Me. That's this really beautiful religious sentiment of, of being gentle and thinking about other people first. Meanwhile, he's doing things like marrying a teenage uh, Tammy Tucker and snorting mountains of cocaine. Yeah, he um, <laughs> he certainly lived both sides of the coin. Um, but as you say, it's it's a it's a it's a rock and roll musical cliche. I mean, everybody. I mean, you've got Jerry Lee Lewis, you've got Little Richard, who sadly passed away recently. Uh, you've got lots of people who have um, sought redemption through religion, um, who lived a high life and sort of flipped between the two. And and for a while, Glenn Campbell was very very good at that. Yeah, he was, and and uh, you know it ends up in sort of farcical tragedy in the early two thousands when he's pulled over for DWI, and there's just a horrific mugshot of him looking terrible, and you know, and then the stories about playing golf and doing cocaine with Alice Cooper and everything. It, it really put a ding on his image, but the last years of his life um, suffering with Alzheimer's, but he toured very late and, and was able to still perform even when he was debilitated enormously and could barely hold a conversation, but he could, you put a guitar in his hand, put him in a microphone. And there's a beautiful documentary about that phase of his life. Yeah. I, I, I saw him a few times during that period and he was, he was great. Um, and he had, a, as I said, he had an ability to interpret his old material, but not in a begrudging way and not in a way that he tried to sort of reinvent the wheel. He had enormous respect for the songs which had made him famous, and he played them in a very orthodox, reverential way. Um, and I think that his audience appreciated that. Very much so. And and I want to hear one last uh, Jimmy Webb, Glenn Campbell collaboration. And this is High Woman, which was later taken on to be a much bigger hit by, by Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, and Johnny Cash. But here's Glenn Campbell's version of Jimmy Webb's High Woman. With sword and pistol by my side Many a young maid lost their baubles to my trade Many a soldier shed his lifeblood on the blade The bastards hung me in the spring of 25 But I am still alive That's Glenn Campbell saying Jimmy Webb's Highwayman. That might be the last great co collaboration. Yeah, I'd say that was probably true. Um, and also, as you mentioned earlier, that it's a song that was made popular by many, many people and has had almost as many interpretations as by the time I get to Phoenix. Um, and it's a very popular song from the sort of mid mid period of, of Jimmy Webb's, Webb's career. And that version is great, but I don't think it holds a candle to um, the songs that they recorded together in the, in the late 60s. Yeah, I, I couldn't argue with that. And let's talk a little bit about the 90s. I wouldn't call it the easy listening revival, but there was definitely a revival. And it was the first time that Glenn Campbell and Jimmy Webb and Burt Bacharach as well were appreciated as artists in the same way that their contemporaries like Brian Wilson or uh, Smokey Robinson had been appreciated historically. Yeah, I mean, that was particularly big in the UK. Um, and 
it, it was kind of odd because suddenly easy listening became cool. It was being written about in the music papers. It was in the face, but Bacharach was selling out the Royal Albert Hall. Um, it was suddenly, you know, easy listening was like the thing. And all those old um, scratched vinyl records from the 60s, the weird Japanese CD imports, I had all that stuff. And I think that, I mean, I, and I had it all because I'd been collecting that stuff for years because I genuinely liked it. I think the only reason it came back it's because every other form of music had already come back. There'd already been a jazz revival, a ska revival, a blues revival, a rock and roll revival. And so easy listening was one of the last things to have had some sort of musical um, PR redemption. Um, but it, it didn't last very long. Um, but it was a joy to be able to go and see uh, Jimmy Webb perform again, see Burt Bacharach perform again, see Glenn Campbell perform again. It was terrific. And I do think the thing that's lasted from that revival, though, is an enduring respect for the artistry of people like Bacharach and Webb and Campbell. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, if you take Burt Bacharach, Jimmy Webb, and Brian Wilson, three of the arbiters of some of the greatest pop songs of the 1960s, and they are often still, to this day, pejoratively called easy listening. but there's nothing there's nothing easy about Burt Bacharach's song. Incredibly complex um, song structures and very dark, often brooding, malevolent lyrics. Um, and I think you could say the same for Brian Wilson uh, and for Jimmy Webb, that they all created very complex mini symphonies uh, often with with lyrics which were over, over and above the, uh, the call of duty and over and above the, the kind of um, uh, stuff you might hear in the charts at the time. Absolutely. And, and, and this idea that Wichita linemen stands head and shoulders above the rest of their work, as good as the rest of their work is, what is it about Wichita linemen in particular that's so special? Because it's a wistful song, it's a song that's all about longing, it's about missing, it's very fundamental, actually, because it's about, it's about a man talking about a woman. Um, but even though you can see the images in your head, it's a very personal, very personal and particular song, which is why I think, as I said earlier, that so many people... Um, have affection for it because it has an ability in on the one hand it's painting this huge widescreen cinematic orchestral vision of of the west or the midwest the guy up a telephone pole and he's listening to his girlfriend and he says i need you more than want you and he couldn't love her anymore um and that's a very universal uh emotion but it's a very personal one, too. Yeah, I think you quote somebody calling it a song about an ordinary man thinking extraordinary thoughts. And I think yeah. that was really yeah. well done. And so, Dylan, I've enjoyed it greatly. The book is The Wichita Lineman, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. Dylan Jones, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much indeed for asking. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. 
Come back next week when Nate's guest will be Greg Prado to talk Soundgarden. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Wichita Lineman, Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song, is published by Faber and Faber Social. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.